As those of you who don't know me, my name is Brian, uh, lead pastor here, and glad to be able to uh, jump into Romans. Before I do that, and again, just another kind of update, uh, we're gonna be, I'm going to be giving us uh, a December giving goal uh, at Lower Town, well, any of our campuses. We don't really talk a lot about money, but it's also very important. It not just pays salaries and keeps the lights on and pays rent and all the different things, but it also allows us to, to do things in our community. Uh, and so we want to be able to keep you updated on what, what that is. And so the reason why we have a December giving goal is because historically uh, for Lower Town and I think all of our locations, we get about 25 uh, percent of, of our yearly income in that month. And so we want to be able to say, hey, here's, here would be the goal of that number. That doesn't make any sense, but here's the goal of what we're trying to reach in the month. And so just want to keep that in front of you so you're aware of what that goal is. And so we can hopefully achieve that together and it would set, up, uh, set us up well for the next six months. Uh, our fiscal year goes to June, end of June 30th. And so we've got another six months after December. So if we can kind of get back uh, where we need to be by the, by the new year, then it, it sets us up uh, to do a lot more. And um, so anyways, gonna just kind of give you a heads up on that. I will give you more information on that throughout the next couple of weeks leading up to December, which there only is only a couple of weeks. So uh, we are in Romans. This is week 34. Uh, and so we've been walking through this passage for uh, this, this book for quite a while. Um, and so just again, just to quickly recap, going one through three, chapters one through three, we're looking at what is the gospel and really looked at even looking at uh, uh, Jonathan Lehman, I think was the author of the book, just this tiny little booklet called What is the Gospel? Phenomenal book. I've changed a little bit, but there's uh, four main things when it comes to the gospel that the Apostle Paul is trying to teach us, that it is uh, through grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone. But the four words we kind of break it down to is, is God, man, Jesus, and faith, and that it is God God the Father, we've got to start with God, that he's good, he creates the world as good, and then humanity comes in and we, we really mess it up and sin enters the world. And so we can't just say, hey, we need Jesus, we need the gospel, we need good news, if I don't realize and recognize that I'm a sinner and in need of help and in need of redemption, and then it's only through faith uh, that we then can believe and be forgiven of our sins. And as we will read again this morning, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so then we've been uh, looking at these, these chapters, four through eight, and we've got a couple more weeks in chapter eight, and we'll, we'll look at a couple more verses in chapter eight this morning of looking at, okay, well, how do we live? How, how does the truth of the gospel impact me now? How, how does it allow me? How, how does the gospel motivate me to be holy? How does the gospel motivate me to, to, to fight sin? And so we'll be digging into that again this morning. It would be uh, well, I, it wouldn't make a lot of sense if I just jumped into the verse this morning without giving a little bit of context of the last couple of weeks. And so uh, really all of chapter eight. So I want to go back to two, two weeks ago, we kind of looked at a courtroom scene of not being guilty or, or being declared not guilty. And so Romans chapter eight, one through four says this, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There's not a delay. This isn't some future thing that someday I won't be condemned when I stand before the judgment seat of God. No, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law and the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And so if we don't have these verses in mind, right? That Jesus got now united with Christ, that he has fulfilled the law through us. 
And, and therefore, I'm not, I'm not required to do anything to, to be justified, to be saved. Christ is the one doing that uh, through me. Uh, on my behalf, and that there's no condemnation. And so then last week, looking at flesh and spirit, part one, Romans 8, 5 through 11, says this, for those who live according to their flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Uh, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. And, and kind of pulled up this uh, older illustration, this idea of, um, oh, sorry, I was supposed to click that, of this, of, of you get this little angel, right? An angel on one side and a, and a little devil on one side. And if I, if, right, if I just feed the flesh, right, the, 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 this devil side is gonna get bigger and stronger. He's gonna overpower me when, when I don't wanna do these things. And that, that analogy can be helpful at times, but that's not, the analogy the Apostle Paul is using. He's saying, no, the Spirit lives in us now. We are in Christ. I'm no longer under condemnation. And so it's not flesh versus spirit. It's I am spirit and his spirit is in me and I then also fight the flesh. And so, um, and then I kind of read this, uh, this quote here from the 20th century Archbishop of Canterbury that your religion is what you do with your solitude, right? When I'm alone and I'm, when I'm in my solitude, when, I'm, when I am out and, and, and I'm not thinking about anything, where does my mind go? And if it goes to things of the flesh, that's what Paul's saying. That's not, that's not what it should be. My mind should be set. My, and he says it five times in four verses, set your mind on things of the spirit. And so again, Tim Keller says this, wherever your mind goes most naturally and freely, when there is nothing else to distract it, that is what you really live for. That is your religion. Your life is shaped by whatever preoccupies your mind. The overcoming of sin in our lives begins in our minds, and victory over sin is only ever the result of having minds set on the Spirit. So then we get into this verse right here, right? You, however, right? It's not angel versus devil. You, however, are not the flesh, in the flesh, but in the Spirit. And if, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of God does not belong to him. And then going and ending with that chapter, or the, the verses from last week, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies, bodies through his spirit who dwells in you, right? And kind of ended with that spirit, the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the spirit that lives in us, right? That same spirit. And we cannot fight sin on our own or we will click very, very quickly go to legalism and law or licentiousness and just say, what's the point of this? I can't, I can't fight this. I can't win this. So what's the point? So now getting into this week of looking at flesh and spirit, part two, Romans 8, 12 through 17. I'm just going to read these verses. And so if you're, if you're able, uh, would you mind just standing with me as I read Romans 8, 12 through 17? The Apostle Paul says this. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if the spirit, you put the deeds to, uh, the de the to death, the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, and heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified uh, 
with him. Thank you. You may be seated. This morning, the goal, what I want to do is look at five truths that we can see in those verses about who we are and how we live positionally now in Christ. If I am in Christ, right, if the gospel is true and I have been made alive, I'm made new, and that spirit, yes, that spirit, the same spirit that raised Christ from the dead dwells in me, how does it affect me? Right? And that's what we're going to be looking at, right? How does my in-Christness affect me? And so we're going to look at five truths and one kind of sub-point that's a very major point. And so the first point, we are in debt, not, no, I didn't mean it like that. Let's look at the verse here, right? It starts off with, in verse 12, so then, or therefore, right? And every time you see that word, therefore, you have to ask, why is it there? What is it there for, right? And so it's, it's very connected. This whole section is going to be connected to, there is now no condemnation, right? Set your mind on the Spirit and the things of the Spirit. Um, you are not flesh, but you are of the Spirit. Therefore, brothers, and I'll talk about that word brothers in just a minute. Why doesn't he say brothers and sisters? What's going on? There's a son's talk going on here. Why? I'll, I'll mention that in just a little bit. He says, so then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. One way that you could then read this is, therefore, brothers, we are not debtors to the flesh, right? We don't owe our flesh anything. We have spent so much time, the Apostle Paul has spent so much time saying, we don't have to go back and sin. We can look sin in the face and say, no, not today, right? We don't owe our sinful natures anything. Douglas Moo uh, says this about this once more. We note that flesh refers not only to our physical or animal appetites, food, drink, sex, nor does it even, or refer even to the nature within us. Flesh, uh, flesh sums up what we often call the world, all that is characteristic in this life in its rebellion against God. It is of this power of the old age that we are no longer obligated to render obedience. Our definitive rescue from the realm of the flesh in verses 7, 5, and 8, 9, has not removed us from contact with and influence from the flesh. Still embodied, we have in this life a continuing relationship to that old realm of sin and death, right? We're, 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 our spirit, the spirit of Christ lives in us, but we're still in our bodies. But we no longer belong to it. Like freed slaves who might out of habit obey their old masters even after being released legally and positionally from them. So we Christians can still listen to and heed the voice of that old master of ours, the flesh. And we have talked about this, right? And I use that analogy of, of, uh, uh, of uh, what was it? Uh, Air Schmidt, uh, right? If you remember, I entered into AI, I had this really great analogy. And I was like, I bet AI can do better. And I thought it was pretty good, right? And so we had Air Schmidt, right? This old, old boss of ours who's screaming orders at us uh, across the Berlin Wall as we've been set free from his but we still just say, oh man, I, I heard and I obeyed that, that voice for so long that we turn back to it and we submit to it. And we have, we've been set free. We have a new master. We have a new boss. And so now we submit to our new boss and submit to our new master, to Christ. But we are free now to obey him when before we didn't have a choice. So again, we are not in debt to the flesh, but I don't want to skip over the fact every commentary I read and every translation I have read, you can't get over and get past the fact that it says, so then, brothers, we are debtors. There's a link here, right? It's not just we are 
uh, we are not debtors to the flesh. That's true. But we are debtors to the spirit. There's something that's going on here, right? So then, brothers, we are debtors. And I just kind of added to Christ. If by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live, right? We are debtors, not to the flesh, but to God and to Christ. So what is it, right? So what are we talking about here? Another translation, you could read that, and it's, we are obligated, right? We are not obligated to the flesh. We can tell the flesh no, but we are obligated in that sense to Christ and to obey and to pursue holiness. And again, we went like, there it is. There it is, Brian. There's the law. I knew you were going to get there. And, and maybe if you want to call this law, fine, right? Call it law. But this is a pursuit of holiness. This is fighting sin as we're going to see. But what we can say clearly, what the Apostle Paul is teaching, clearly there's an obligation to Christ. Clearly there's a debt to Christ. Not one that we can ever pay off. And so the idea is not to work hard or be a better person and, and try to do these things so that he will love me more. That's not it at all. But we are in debt in a good way. We are obligated to Christ. Paul has already said we serve a new master, right? We're now free to serve Christ, not to just do whatever we want. I'm saved, therefore I can do whatever I want. Paul spends chapter six and chapter seven answering four of those hypothetical questions of like, oh, I'm now in Christ, therefore I guess I can sin and keep doing whatever I want. He's like, no, what are you talking about? If you are in Christ and you love Christ, why would you wanna go back to the deeds of the flesh? And so we've been set free from that. To illustrate it, I could maybe just talk about the fact that I'm, I'm a dad, I'm a father, and my kids, though, are under obligation to me, right? My, my kids owe me something, right? Not because I, I created them, right? That kind of, I brought you into this world, I can take you out of it. And stupid, don't, don't ever say it to your kids if you have kids, right? Um, that, that's not the kind of debt. You don't owe me because you have a pulse, right? That doesn't, that doesn't make any sense, right? It's pretty easy to make, <laughs> make children in that sense, right? That's not what you owe me. You don't owe me your life because I helped create you. No, 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 no. But I'm your dad right? And I love my children. I love them, but I love them because they're my kids. I don't love your kids the way I love my kids. They're my kids. And I discipline them and I correct them and I love them. And I love them, hopefully, in a sacrificial way, the father loves me, that I have a heavenly father who loves me, right? And so that kind of love, the love that the father has for me, for my children, or for me, he has for me, that I want to have for my children, that takes work, it takes discipline, right? I, don't, I have to set my preferences aside for my kids. I don't get to, as a dad, do whatever I want. I don't get to do that. I am obligated to raise my children the way that Christ wants me to raise my children. I am obligated to parent them the same way the father parents me. I would be a terrible dad if I let my kids do whatever they wanted all the time, right? I would, be, I would, I would have, hopefully, the elders of the church being like, hey, dude, we've we got to talk about your parenting because you're not doing it. You're not doing anything. That's not good, right? We don't just get to do whatever we want. They are under obligation. And we're just like that. We are kids. We are children of the Father. As we've seen, we are sons. We are heirs. And we're going to see. And we've been adopted. I get no joy from my children when they obey and they're kicking and screaming the entire, the entire time, right? Hey, Emma, take your plate to the sink. Why do we have to do this? Every time we eat, you take your plate to the sink when you're done. Ah, that's not fair. I can't. My arms don't work. What are you talking about, right? Yes, they do. Take your plate to the sink. And then if she takes it and she's screaming and throwing food everywhere and then puts your plate in the sink, I'm not like, hey, good job. Thanks for obeying. 
No, 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 of course not, right? There's a motivation that should be changed in us that we don't obey Christ because I have to, I ought to, I should obey him because I owe him something. No, 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 we run to him because he loves us. We see who he is and we go, yes, that's the life I want to live now in Christ. There's a positional change. And so again, when we see the love and the sacrifice of the Father on our behalf, it obligates, or rather it motivates us to fight sin and to live by the Spirit, to mind the things the Spirit minds. So again, John Stott, um, old uh, Puritan, says this, if you let the remaining sinful nature alone, if you allow it to prosper and grow, there will be a terrible trouble. Instead, you must, by the Spirit, attack and put it to death. The more you put it to death, the sinful nature, the more you will enjoy spiritual life that the Holy Spirit gives life and peace. That this is joy. I'm, I'm going to enjoy my spiritual life. Now, here's where that analogy of the, of the, the angel and the devil um, really starts to break down. Again, it, it can be helpful, but not, that's not what Paul is trying to, to say here. And what Stott is saying, that it's not, right? The, the analogy is if I... If I uh, feed my flesh. If I feed the devil, it's going to get bigger and stronger and more powerful. And so when my weak little spirit tries to, tries to win a victory, well, then the flesh is always going to win. That can be helpful, but I don't think that's what's happening. What Stott is saying here is quite the opposite, that if I do nothing to that flesh, it's going to grow stronger. It's going to grow bigger. And, that, and, and that's what's going to, so we need to be on the offensive. We need to attack it. We need to, again, as Paul says, we need to put it to death. We need to go on the offensive. This is war. Again, Romans 8, 12 through 17, focusing in on that phrase, put it to death. Put to death the deeds of the body. Again, just like uh, verse one of there is now no condemnation. This is true now. This isn't just waiting for some day when I'll have some glorified body, some future eschatological great fulfillment that we're going to have this new body in Christ. He's saying, now do this. If you have the spirit and you live by the spirit and you put your mind to the spirit, then you will put to death the deeds of the body. We need to attack and put to death the deeds of the body. Tim Keller says this. This means a Christian doesn't play games with sin. This is from his commentary in Romans. Sorry, I don't have a footnote there for you. This means a Christian doesn't play games with sin. You don't aim to wean yourself off of it or say, I can keep it under control. You get as far away from it as possible. You don't just avoid things you know are sin. You avoid the things that lead to it. And even things that are doubtful. This is war. Now, Again, I know a lot of you know, know my background. And you can read something like this and go, this is really easy to fall into legalism. Really easy, right? Start setting things up. I want to stay away from it as possible. This is where religious legalism can sneak in because my sins and struggles probably aren't your sins and your struggles, right? And the analogy that was always given was this idea of if I am an alcoholic or I struggle with alcoholism, then I'm not going to go to a bar and hang out with my friends and they're all drinking and I'll just always be the designated driver and I won't struggle. Say, no, get, stay away from that, right? And that's not law, that's just wisdom, right? 
But my thing, this thing that I struggle with might not be your thing. And so if I struggle with alcohol and I say, hey, absolutely not under any circumstance, should you ever be at anyone's house or party that there's alcohol involved? Don't go to restaurants where they serve it. Don't do any of that because I'm, I'm weak in that position. So then therefore I'm not gonna do it. So I'm gonna put that law on you. And then when you go do it, or I hear that you were at a party or I hear that you drink, God forbid, then therefore you are sinning. You've, you've, you've done something wrong. And that's where legalism can really be a problem. When we start saying, oh, Christians, 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 the word? Christians shouldn't fill in the blank. Christians should fill in the blank. That's where we start to fall into legalism. And what, what, but what uh, Tim Keller is saying here is this is war. We're not to take this lightly, that it's not just keep feeding the spirit and then don't feed the flesh and we'll win. No, it's saying attack it. Go to war against your flesh. Don't take this lightly. In the 1989 movie, The Abyss, anybody seen this movie? Uh, great movie uh, back in the day. Uh, it still is. Same guy that did uh, Terminator, a lot of the same. Uh, anyways, in The Abyss, there's this scene, okay? Um, and I, and I don't, I don't want to give the whole thing, but you can kind of gather what, what's going on in this movie, that they are um, at this deep sea station under underground. I don't know why. I don't know what it is, but it's really deep under the water. Um, and, and, you know, and anyways, they're, they're at this huge, it's like a space station under the water. This is fiction. This is fiction, by the way. Um, and it's actually this movie, every time the argument comes up between these hard metal rings versus a silicone ring, uh, I always reference this movie. Because there's a scene where it starts to flood and the, and the main guy, Buzz, I'll talk about him in a minute, it's flooding behind him and the, and the doors are closing to stop the flooding and he puts his hand in the door and it slams on his ring and he's got enough room to scream for help and they, they get him out and he's saved by his ring. Silicone ring, he's dead. He's dead, just saying. Um, okay, that has nothing to do with this. What are we talking about? The abyss, what happens? There's a scene, okay, super intense, okay? Uh, Buzz and his um, uh, ex-wife there, it's complicated relationship. They are uh, in, a, in a submersible, a little submarine, and they get rammed by a marine who's having decompression issues and uh, getting a little crazy. So anyways, it's flooding. This little thing is flooding. Well, he, they only have one uh, suit, right, to, to breathe in. And so they had this argument. She's like, hey, you're a better swimmer. You already have the wetsuit on. Uh, what's going to happen is I'm going to die. Right, I'm, we're going to let the water come up. I'm going to drown, and you're going to you're going to you're going to swim me back to safety. And when we get back to safety, then you can resuscitate me. That's what we're going to do. And they agreed to it. And obviously, at this moment when the water's coming up, she's like, "Hang on, I changed my mind. You die. I'll be the one. I'll swim you back." Right? And it, it's too late. And so that's what happens. Her lungs fill with water. He then swims her over to the to the base. He gets up into the into the land, the area where they're at in safety, and they are doing everything to try to resuscitate this woman, right? They've got the, uh, those paddles, right, the AED stuff and, and everything, and nothing's working. And this guy, the husband, Buzz, loses his mind. It's, it's one of those moments, you know, like in every movie when, some, like when the hero is about to die, and you're like, okay, they're going to come back to life. We all know everything ends happy. This one's like, oh, she's dead, <laughs> she's dead. right? There's no happy ending here, but then Buzz doesn't give up. And he starts screaming at her. And he takes his hands and he just pounds on her chest and he just starts screaming in her face, fight, fight. And he just keeps doing this. And then, and then you get to happy ending. She spits up water and she comes back to life, right? Spoiler alert. It was, it was made in 89. <laughs> I think we're okay. 
I don't know. I'm like, when, I, when I see the words like this, put it to death, fight your flesh. I don't think we go at it with that kind of intensity. Do we fight it? Are we on the offensive to this, to kill sin, to put it to death? I don't know if we do. I think we're just bystanders. I think, yeah, I want to, I want to, yeah, I want to be in church. I want to be a good Christian. I want to do good things. But do we attack our flesh with that kind of ferocity of war? Another maybe way to illustrate it of our maybe a passivity, my son, I just recently introduced my six-year-old to Warcraft 2. Anyone remember this one? Um, it's free online. You just need, it's just a website. It's like 10 megabytes, it just runs on the internet now. You don't even need anything. You don't download anything, it just runs. Um, I introduced them to this old game. It was one of the first games that I remember playing as a kid uh, across the uh, modem. And I would play with my friends on landline and you know, someone would pick up the phone and the game would shut down. But I remember playing this game and I was like, oh, I bet my son would really like this game. And he did. And so we, we started, I taught him how to play. And so the idea is you make an army and there's another army, it's Warcraft, or you craft your army and you go to, go to war. Well, my son, Henry, was like, I really like the building of this. Can we like turn the, the war off? Can, I don't want to have to fight them, right? And, and I would come down, I'd see him playing the game and he's got five, you know, structures and buildings and, and walls and roads and things. I'm like, you don't need that. You need to make your army. And then the other army would come and destroy. I'm like, oh, I don't like this game. I just want to make a city. I'm like, then this is not the game for you, <laughs> right? Right? Because I think that we view our lives like this. Oh, no, I just want to, I just want to build up my thing. I want to build up my, my spirituality. And I don't want to have to defend myself against the attacks of the devil, against temptation. And, and, we, and we get destroyed by it. This is war. It's called Warcraft. You go and you fight the enemy. And if you don't, you will be destroyed. That's kind of what the Apostle Paul is saying. This is war. We have to put it to death. And again, this idea of putting sin to death is a subset directly, directly connected to the idea of set your mind on the spirit. They're directly connected. I cannot do one without the other. Again, the same spirit that is now in me, that, yes, that spirit, the spirit that raised Christ from the dead is now the spirit that lives in me. And that is what enables me and empowers me then to fight and to go after my flesh and to go after the deeds of the flesh. Uh, and then again, uh, oh, another quote here from Keller. Sorry, I got lost in my notes here. Tim Keller says this, remember your life is an expression of your mind. And many Christians try to control themselves with law-centered mini-sermons. We say to ourselves things like, if I do that, God will get me. Or, or, or it's against my Christian principles. Or it will hurt people around me. Or I will be embarrassed. Or it will hurt my self-esteem. Or I'll hate myself in the morning. Some or all of these may be true, but Paul tells us they are inadequate. That is not war. That is not fighting. That is my flesh fighting against my flesh, which again, this flesh self-preservation is always going to be in its own interest. We think that by doing these things and telling ourselves that I'm going to win this war, no, we're not. He says, they don't kill sin. It, might, it might, might delay it. It might put it back for a little bit. It doesn't kill sin. And he says, that is taking your temptation to the law and using fear. To deter, to, de, to deter yourself. And he says, we haven't been given a spirit of fear, or we haven't been given that. And again, we see this in Christ. I need the spirit of God. Again, yes, that spirit, 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also suffered once for sins, 
the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God being put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit. He is our example. He does this perfectly on our behalf, in our behalf, and we are united in him. The third truth that I want to point out is this idea of sons of God. In Romans, again, in this verse, you're going to 14. I kind of highlighted these fours. They're all, it's all building on top of one another. So then, brothers, we are not debtors to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you will put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. And again, why would the Apostle Paul use that word sons? He had the word in his vocabulary for daughters. Why not say sons and daughters? This was, uh, I knew I had a quote on this. I had read this, uh, the woman, Chelsea Stanley, in an article for the Gospel Coalition. This was over two years ago or almost two years ago when we were preaching through the book of Ephesians. And the same thing comes up. The Apostle Paul says, you're sons of God. And I said, why, why, why does he do that? Let me read what she says in this article to the Gospel Coalition. She says, in ancient cultures, sons were named as the legal heirs. In turn, husbands and fathers were expected to provide for the women of their households. Being a direct heir in society uh, would not have been possible for the, Gal- for the Galatian women. Again, this was a quote from, from, uh, from Ephesians. Uh, Though they would uh, receive a kind of indirect inheritance through marriage. Imagine the Galilean women coming to hear this, this, of this new status in God's kingdom as Paul speaks in their otherwise familiar terms. Picture these women hearing Paul's letter and reading and read a letter addressed to the entire Galatian church. They understood sonship and that all it, and all that it entailed. So hearing that God had given both brothers and sisters together the status of sons would have blown them away. God stepped in and radically declared that men and women are one in Christ, equally privileged and exalted, co-heirs together. In his kingdom, both men and women receive the full inheritance through faith in him. In his loving kindness, our heavenly father allows us to share in the same inheritance today. While the notion of gender equality might not sound quite as foreign to our modern ears, the mystery of God's unmerited favor and grace should continue to fill us with tremendous awe. We who are once slaves are not only sons, but heirs of God. Sisters, this is extraordinary news. And I don't want to just highlight that this is only about the women and and the sisters, but this is also for the men in the room. We are sons of God. We looked at this idea of Mufasa last week. Remember who you are. You are a child of the king. That's who I am. You are loved by the father. A lot of times, at least in the circles that I, I'm, I'm in with Acts 29 and other church planning networks, there we talk a lot about father wounds, uh, things that our dad may have done to us or didn't do, things that we, and we've been wounded by that and, and it affects us deeply, right? Uh, men and women, right? Uh, but there's, there's things, and I, and I, um, I <laughs> this is an ongoing debate, but I don't think I have father wounds because I don't, I don't have a dad. How can you be injured by something you don't have? I don't, I don't know, right? If I don't have a hand, if my hand's injured and it's cut off, it can't hurt me anymore, right? Uh, that analogy breaks down. <laughs> I just got convicted by myself by my own analogy. Uh, I don't have father wounds. No, I do, right? Everyone does, right? In that sense. And this is saying, hey, we have a father. We have a heavenly father who loves us, who gives himself for us, who only, always has our best interest in mind. 
I don't. I don't, I, I might love my children, I might prioritize them, I might do whatever, everything I can, but I don't always have their best interest in mind. I'm selfish. Hey guys, you wanna, you wanna watch TV for a little bit so I can take a nap? Yeah, that's selfish, okay? That's not what the father does. But not only do we have a father, are we in debt not to the flesh, but we are indebtedness to the spirit and we are sons of the God, but we also have access to the father. Again, looking at Romans 8, specifically verse 15, for on that same thought, continuing with that, you are sons of God, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. This is a less formal word for dad. If you've been watching The Chosen, right? Uh, Jesus, he always calls Ima, right? Ima is the Hebrew word for mom and Abba is this word for, for dad, right? That's what it means. It's a very informal way of saying, you're, you're my dad. That, that's this, right? And again, I, I don't have someone I get to call dad, but I get to call the father, my creator, dad. That's what, that's what this is. That's, that's, that's powerful. There's uh, just a wild story. Some of you might be familiar with this. This is uh, the gentleman on the right is Coach Sherman Smith. And the guy right next to him there is uh, Dylan McCulloch. I don't know how to say his name, uh, his last name. Uh, long story short, you have this coach who, uh, NFL coach, and, and he would mentor young kids in, in high school. And so he coached and mentored this young man. Uh, and he was adopted when he was, his mom uh, got pregnant when he was, she was 16, gave him up for adoption, and so he never knew his real parents. And when he was in his 30s, some laws changed, and, and he was able to then find access, who are my real parents? And so he was able to contact his mother, his biological mother, and asked her, who is my biological dad? And who do you think it was? It's his mentor. It was this guy right next to him, this guy that he looked up to as a father figure ends up actually being his biological dad. This is a true story. He said this when he was uh, talking to ESPN, the younger guy, uh, Dylan, says this, if you would have told me to pick who my father was, there's no way I would have picked him because I might've thought I wasn't worthy for him to be my father. I felt like my blessings came full circle because I'd always wanted to be somebody like him. That is our story. That is us. You say, we have the same thought. Father, I'm not worthy of your love. I'm not worthy of this, right? And as we looked back at, at Martin Luther a couple weeks ago, he says, I, yeah, you, you better believe you're not worthy. What of it? Jesus is worthy. And I've been adopted. I am now part of this family. And so we can look at this idea of the prodigal son, this beautiful story in this son who's got his head down. He's squandered everything. He's spit in his dad's face. He's walked away. He, he lost his inheritance. And he says, I've got nothing left. I need to go back to my father and with his head hanging low, despised, literally uses those words. I am not worthy to even be called your servant. The father, when he's far away, sees him and with his arms wide open comes running to the son. You are sons and daughters. You are heirs of the king, of that father, of a father who sees you sulking, saying, I'm just not good enough. I'm not worthy enough. And he says, I know you're not, but Jesus is. And I love you and he embraces us. Obligation to love? 
sure. But man, that's motivating. It's motivating for me to want to serve the king when I know he loves me like that. And this is only possible with the Spirit's help. Yes, that Spirit. We see in Romans 16, 8, 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit. It's the only time in Romans 8 if the Spirit is it's used the most anywhere in the Bible. Holy Spirit's talked about, but this is the only time in that chapter where it talks about our spirit. The Spirit himself, the Holy Spirit, God's Spirit, bears witness with our spirits, that we are children of God. It's proof. I, I am a child of God. I am indwelt with his spirit. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might also be glorified with him. And again, this isn't, I, I got to suffer. I need to beat my body, some, some Gnosticism and, and my body, my flesh is, is bad. Like my body is bad. No, 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 no. No, no, he suffered on our behalf and I am united with him. He does this on my behalf so that we may see glory with him. Final quote here from Douglas Moo. It says, Paul gives Christians the responsibility to conquer the dominion of sins in their lives, but he stresses that they can only do this through the spirit. Holiness of life then is achieved neither by our own uh, unaided effort, the error of moralism or legalism, nor by the Spirit apart from our participation. That some who insist that the key to holy living is to surrender or let go and let God would have it. But our constant living out the life placed within us by the Spirit who has taken up residence within. We set our minds on the Spirit. We set our minds on the thing that the Spirit sets his mind on. We're preoccupied with the Spirit and we fight sin. So in gospel application, again, just a reminder we don't owe the flesh anything. You don't owe the flesh anything. We serve a new master. We wear a new name. We walk a new road. So we fight. We fight hard and we fight this war. But we can't do it on our own doing. We need the spirit to enable us. One other thing about war is that you very rarely will see a war fought by one person. When there's a fight in the street between two individuals, we don't call that, oh, there was a war downtown St. Paul on 7th and 9th. Like, what are you talking about? Two people got in a fist fight. That's not war. War is usually a lot of people doing it together. And I would remind us that we are a community of believers, that I don't fight this on my own. I get help and I talk to one another. I have accountability. I, I work through these things with one another so we can encourage each other and enable each other to fight together. No wars fought alone. We are brothers and sisters alongside one another in the trenches, depending on the Spirit. And then finally, you have a loving Father who is waiting for you with open arms. That is good news. That's the gospel. And that is what motivates me to fight and to not quit, to not give in. I want to love that Father because he loved me first. Every week at Hope Lower Town, we have um, communion and uh, so this is a way, just an opportunity to remember the finished work of Christ on the cross, that we get to take these elements and remember that Jesus did this for us. It is only because of his sacrifice that he enables and gives his spirit with us that allows us to approach that father because he is holy and just and good and he cannot bear the sight of sin in his presence. And it's because of Jesus and his finished work that allows us to approach God. And so we have the juice, real juice this morning, um, 
there was a little bit of a backlog with the, uh, the cheap little prepackaged wafer thing. So we have real juice and real bread. If you need uh, uh, gluten-free, there's a couple uh, gluten-free, little, the little cheap ones on the side. Um, so this is real. We're doing it for real today. Uh, this is big people church uh, this morning. Um, uh, and so I'm I, sorry. We do this to remember. All right, this is, this is the finished work of Christ. And so we take these elements, the juice that represents the blood of Christ, his new, the new covenant is in his blood that he did. In, and we take this as long as we eat this and drink this, we do it in remembrance of who he is and what he's done. And we can take the bread and we can take that again in remembrance of his broken body for us. So let me pray. And as I pray, the worship team's gonna come back up and they're gonna play two songs. And so feel free to come forward at any time, grab those elements and take a seat. You don't need to be a member of this church. You don't need to be uh, a, a, you know, a standing, good standing member with any church. Uh, you, if you love Jesus, if you say, yes, that is, my, that is my brother. I'm a co-heir with my brother, Jesus. And it's because of his sacrifice that I, yes, I love the father. If you've bent the knee to King Jesus, we'd love for you to have this, this meal with us. And again, because it's not a, it's not a, it is a personal relationship with Jesus, but it's not private. It's not a private relationship with Jesus. This is a, this is a public thing. We go to war with one another. And there's something you're struggling with, something you're worried, you're, you, you're like, man, I just can't win victory over this. Put, fill out a prayer request, talk to somebody. I'd love to talk with you about it. I have my own sins, my own struggles that I have to fight and that I need your help to fight with. That we're in this together.